Welcome to the Less Matters Podcast. This is a podcast not just for those people interested in large-scale Scrum, oh no. This is a podcast for anybody who wants to know how to make single or multi-team agile work in any product-led or project-driven organisation. I'm Ben Maynard. And with over a decade of experience leading Agile in organisations both huge and small, I am uniquely placed to interview some of the best and brightest minds on topics that will help you be the best Agile practitioner you could possibly hope to be. And in this episode, we're joined by Paddy Dander, the enigmatic host of the Superpowers School podcast, head of Agile practice for the UK's largest tech training provider, QA, and a person who has the dubious honour of being involved in the UK government's largest ever Agile failure, which of course was the thing that I wanted to focus on in this conversation. And before we begin, don't forget to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And without any further ado, let's begin this episode. Hello and welcome to the Less Matters podcast. This is one of our less stories where I like to get an agile expert. Yes, Paddy, you're now an agile expert. <laughs> Look behind you all you like. You are the expert, Paddy. I like to get an agile expert in to share a story, something from their experience. So today we are joined by the esteemed Paddy Dander who is someone that I met whilst working at Deutsche Bank, the most wonderful of German banks, a few years ago. And uh, we've remained friends ever since. So, uh, Paddy, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, Ben, thank you so much. Honestly, it's always a pleasure whenever I get to catch up with you. It's always a barrel of laughs. And uh, hopefully we can uh, do some of that today as well. (laughs) I like the fact that you've gone straight in there. And said there's going to be a laugh after my comment before we started the, the recording itself, where I said, I'm not funny. Let's see if I can re- redeem myself somewhat on the funny mistakes. <laughs> we, will, we will have a laugh, whichever way it works out. We're both in the same boat on that, Ben, because I don't think of myself as being very funny either. So um, we'll be unfunny together. Partners in unfunniness. <laughs> so Paddy's here to share a story with us, or maybe two stories, depending how we're doing for time. But before we do... You probably know who I am, but you may be wondering who this Agile expert Paddy is. So I'm going to hand over to him and let him introduce himself to you all. Paddy, over to you. Oh, thank you, Ben. So my real name is Pardeep, but everybody calls me Paddy. Not that I'm Irish or anything like that, but I think people just sometimes can't pronounce the two syllables. And it's probably my mother's the only one who calls me Pardeep when I'm in trouble. So if you hear that in the background, you know I've done something wrong. Uh, but no, I am from the city of the Peaky Blinders. Anyone that's a Peaky Blinders fan, I'm from Birmingham. And I would say, just going back from where I've come from, I actually went to the worst performing school in the UK. Uh, and that's official because that was the year that league tables were announced in the UK. So my school was literally the bottom of those league tables. Uh, I know it's nothing to be proud of, but I think... In many ways, it's really helped shape me as a person in the direction that I've gone just because of the types of characters I was surrounded by uh, when I was at school. And beyond then, uh, really sort of started off my career in technology uh, with BT, Uh, started off in development doing C programming, Oracle DBA, and then moved more into sort of business analysis and uh, some of the agile roles. Been involved in probably the biggest agile failure on the planet as well on universal credit. So uh, we may get time to talk about that today. And beyond uh, those early years, 
uh, I've been involved in sort of learning and uh, my more recent roles have all centered around head of agile learning for Deutsche Bank uh, and my current role, which is with QA, who are a training company, probably the UK's biggest tech trainer. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. And I love podcasting as well. So uh, I'm just launching my new podcast, which is called Superpower School, all around human skills for the future. That's me. Will it teach me how to augment myself, Paddy? Is that what the uh, superpowers.school is all about? Oh, it's quite interesting because it actually focuses on the non-tech elements. So probably not so much of that. It's more around creativity, agility. You've lost a listener, Paddy. You've lost, oh, you've no. lost a listener there, mate. If you were going to teach me how to like embed the chip from my card into my hand or something, then I would have... I Absolutely subscribed, but well, well I, I'm going to take that feedback, Ben, and I'll uh, I'll certainly take it seriously, <laughs> like really seriously. <laughs> what is the podcast going to be about? Yes, yeah, it's, it's really themed around uh, the the human skills that are really important for us and the things we need to think about. So, if you think about, everybody keeps talking about STEM subjects, technology, and the robots are going to be taking over. The world's going to be more automated, and what I really want to do is. Know, give people some inspiration and motivation to learn some of the human skills because I think they're really, really important. And just as the great work you do, Ben, in the community, really around sort of some of that sort of coaching mindset um, and and team dynamics and all of those good things, really important. So I'm really focused on the human element, and uh, so it's less about the tech, uh, just because I think we get lots of tech from everyone else. Uh, and that's really the direction. And that could include anything. It could be someone's climbed a mountain. How did they go about it? What are the key skills needed to be successful at that? Uh, entrepreneurship, agility, creativity, all of those good things. So here's a, I was going to say here's an unscripted question, but we haven't scripted any questions. So here is the first of a few unscripted questions. Go for it. When you talked about the, how did you, how did you describe it? The most successful, unsuccessful agile adoption? What was it of universal credit? The biggest, the biggest failure. Um, what was the number one human skill that was missing in that environment which could have helped it? I think the there were there was never anyone that ever said we can't do this. There's almost this this sort of perception that everybody had to give confidence to their leadership and everyone around them that they were going to be successful no matter what. So really the lack of self-reflection and being able to show vulnerability, I would say, is probably the biggest thing that was lacking. When the leaders knew things weren't going in the right direction, they clearly could see some of the people on the ground were having a hard time, stressful situations. People were leaving a really toxic environment, but never did anyone ever say, it's okay to fail. It's okay that we don't know what we're doing. I think for me, that was the mm. biggest thing. Everybody was a pro programmed robot um, because we were working with lots of really intelligent consultants, probably about 200 consultants from different consultancies, and everybody was programmed to show that they were successful. Fascinating stuff. There's a number of things that then like were listing off in my head. The first thing was the work done, uh, well, the work that, Amy Edmondson popularized on psychological safety and the freedom to try to take a level of interpersonal risk. 
And um, there's a terrible story which has come out in the news in the UK uh, this week, listening to the story this morning. I won't want to depress everyone, but it was regarding the NHS and just saying how that there was a lot of unnecessary deaths because mm. of people being unwilling to admit that they were wrong, which is kind of very similar to the the age-old story from Amy Edmondson about the hospital where um, where there was psychological safety, where you were encouraged to speak about your mistakes and learn from them. They had a lower mortality, they had a lower death rate than, say, the hospitals that were where the people feared being able to be honest. But then you've also got this thing of the bystander effect, you know, where we feel comfortable just to stand on the side and watch something happening, even though maybe we feel it isn't right or we know afterwards it wasn't right. Do you feel it was psychological safety that was missing or whether there was, was it just the fact that consultants were paid so much money they didn't feel like they were going to continue to get paid if they were honest? I definitely wouldn't say it was a latter on that one. I would say, because <laughs> I know how much I was paid, wasn't near enough. Uh, but I think there was definitely that lack of psychological safety, you know, 100%. If I just give you sort of the context of it. At the time, Ian Duncan Smith, who was one of the sort of MPs, and he was really the sponsor of this initiative. He'd really put his neck on the line when it comes to Parliament to say this multi-billion pound initiative was needed. Uh, and, and there was a good business Is it case wrong? It. Is it wrong that now I'm kind of happy that it wasn't a success because you mentioned IDS? Is that a bad uh, thing? Ah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> 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 Sorry, but, carry on. Carry but, on. but, you know, the, the business case was sound. In in terms of benefits uh, that were being claimed at the time. So, so Universal Credit is all about claiming benefits in the UK and making it easier for claimants to claim those benefits. Previously, you had to go to lots of different agencies within the government. So housing benefit, child support yeah. benefit, all of that good stuff. What Universal Credit was going to do was allow you to go to one single portal and be able to put your details in once, and then you're able to see exactly how much benefit you should be getting. Now, And it, it, it lightened the assessment process as well, because when I was younger, I was on benefits. Right. There was a time where I had nowhere to live, and I, I, then I managed to get somewhere to live by some miracle, and I got housing benefit, and I got council tax benefit, and I got something called income support. And for each of those, I had to be assessed independently. And interestingly, right. they all had different cutoff points for age as well. So I hit 18, and whilst I was entitled to get income support, which was, you know, which is more than enough to survive on. I mean, who needs more than £20 a week for clothes and food and bills? Hmm. Um, but what it didn't mean is that they wouldn't pay my rent anymore because I was 18 and I was at college. So when they were talking about universal credit and they were talking about how it will make these types of things easier and, yeah, it, it does sound like a bit of a panacea. Yeah. And the thing at the time was, Ben, you probably weren't as savvy as some other claimants are out there because what other claimants would do is say, if they're going to lose this benefit, I'm going to game the system and I'm going to give us different set of circumstances to another uh, benefits agency so that they could get under the threshold. And the agencies weren't really talking to one another because they weren't integrated. So you could be giving completely different facts and figures to different parts of the system and get away with it. And so there's over £11 billion worth of fraudulent claims going on. Universal Credit 
was costed at around seven billion pounds. So we do the cost benefit analysis. In the first year, yeah. it's going to pay back, right? So that was really the premise. It was a no-brainer from an approval process. But then, as the project was set up, because Ian Duncan Smith had promised and made these big commitments, uh, there was a lot of pressure on everybody around in terms of the leadership team. There were consultancies. Uh, representing different big brand names, the likes of IBM, who I was part of, Accenture, Atos, BT. Like there were just so many people involved and it was very lucrative for many of those companies. So I think the leadership really did not want to fail. And if there was failure, didn't want the finger pointed at them. So all of that mixed together probably contributed to this toxic culture that I talked about and this lack of psychological safety. What was so fundamentally suboptimal? What needed to change then? Great question. So it was seen as the government's uh, flagship agile program. So the, the government has lots of projects going on, but universal credit was deemed as being the flagship, the poster child they wanted to create. So again, another contributing factor as to why it couldn't fail. But in terms of the way the whole program was set up, I mean, you'll know this better than anyone, Ben. You know, I know you've got a, a background in business analysis. So when the vendors turned up on the very first day, we were given these big, thick documents and they were specifications that had been built over time stating what the requirements should be of the platform. So they'd spent a good number of years beforehand documenting all of the requirements and now we were taking these requirements and being told we had to deliver in an agile way. And we've got multiple vendors on site. Uh, everybody has their own approach. So if you imagine every consultancy has their own flavor of agile practices. Uh, and the people on site, and, and, and I really felt for them from the client side, we had product owners who were put in position who really didn't know what the role entailed. I don't think they had ever really been trained to the level that they should have been. And so every time we would ask them a question for clarification, most of the time they would try and answer with the best will in the world. But often when they didn't know the answer, they would really struggle. And as we know, in agility, if you really want to you know, experience agility, you need that fluidity of information flowing back and forth. And the extreme example so, so the team that I was part of was the BPMN team. So we were doing business process automation and we were building the complex rules behind the engine. And we'd ask lots of questions and we'd say, okay, imagine Ben is a claimant. Ben has this situation today. He's you know paid this amount of money. Uh, maybe he deserves child support money. Uh, oh, but then Ben commits a crime. Ben gets arrested. He goes to prison. What should happen to his benefits? And what other benefits is he allowed? Oh, but whilst he's in prison, uh, he gets divorced. And now his circumstances have changed again. So there are all of these complicated scenarios that no one had really ever thought through. So when we were asking product owners, hey, product owner, what's the answer? There was a big pause. And often those sort of questions would then be sent to parliament because we just didn't have any rules. And a policy would have to be written specifically for that situation. And as you know, in government, things don't move very fast. So we would be sitting there 
twiddling our thumbs, trying to fill our sprint with other work whilst these other answers were being resolved. And then eventually those answers would come back and then we'd ask another question and then the cycle would go (laughs) back and forth in that way. So I would say when we, we talk about what are some of the big contributing factors here, well, in that situation where you waterfall your requirements, you don't really have much uh, flexibility in changing those requirements and every time you do want to change them they have to be approved by parliament agility is 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 going to is going to get impacted in a massive massive way i mean the very fact that you've said that it has to be approved by parliament uh just kind of makes me think that that is not going to be a long old cycle time that is a long process to go through and what it reminds me of is spec by example Somewhat, and you know, you get handed a big specification, which which would never include, at least in my experience, actual examples of the kind of data that people are going to be looking at when they're actually using it. And it's just spurious, abstract statements, or or even worse, just saying, "Oh, just like just implement this, or just implement that." It doesn't give you enough information. And one thing that uh, Goiko Adzik said to me years ago was, when you're looking at the work you're going to do. Around like auto, like building tests tests around some specifications, focus on the stuff that's usually going to happen to give you time to deal with the stuff that is quite unusual. Was there an element of you were being asked to focus on these spurious edge cases rather than focusing on the things that were likely just going to happen every day, or have I just kind of gone off on a unuseful tangent? No, you're absolutely right, Ben. The problem was there were very few everyday scenarios, right? Because when you, as soon as we start linking up these different types of benefits, there is always going to be complication. I don't, you know, every one of us has a completely different situation to someone else. And I think there were just so many edge cases that it almost became the majority. Um, but we dealt with that really well. I'll, I'll tell you how we dealt with it. We dealt with it in an if-then statement, if-then-else statement. So if this is a situation, then do X, Y, Z else create a manual task right so so literally in the rules engine we were creating manual tasks all over the place because we didn't really have the policy in place to figure out what the business rules were so now we think about the the sort of whole fundamentals of this platform were to automate things and reduce manual effort well we did almost the opposite because there were very few automated scenarios that we could automate and the system can figure stuff out. Nearly every claim would require some manual intervention. And in a way, that just defeats the whole purpose of having an automated uh, platform that's going to make life easier for the claimant because now they're having to wait around for days at a time while someone manually has to support this. And the other really interesting thing here is, and, and you know, again, I'm not sure how you deal with this in less or any other framework, but the fact is I don't think there was enough thinking done on the operational side of things. So as technologists, it's easy for us to build a rule that says kick off a manual task in this situation, but do we have the operations within the business to be able to support that? Because if now 90% of every claim requires manual intervention, we need an army of people to run that in the background. And I don't think we had thought that through at all. I can answer it from a less perspective, in a roundabout way. I'll step through this. So one, 
It reminded me of a story that someone told me about when the UK government first took tax online. Mm-hmm. And what you effectively did was fill in the form online. And then what would happen is someone would print off the form and then basically go and type it into another system for you. And then when I was reading the Lean Startup, uh, whenever that was, Eric Rees talks about a concierge MVP where you do the bare minimum, but you have people in the background doing the actual work. And I was like, oh, well, okay, then I've definitely seen that and I've definitely heard about that. So that is a thing. So what it sounded a bit like was a concierge MVP, which is great if you know that where you're going to is actually possible. Now, what I found interesting when you asked about how would less approach it, one of the things that I've spent some time researching is around uh, platform management versus product management. And one of the most interesting things I discovered when looking at platform management as a, as a thing was this concept of middle users and how from say, a UC universal credit perspective, you had your end customer user, which was the person, the claimant, but then you've got middle users who are the operations. So what you have is this much more difficult situation. And from less, this would fall under product ownership where you have a, at least a two tier discovery. You can't, expect your middle users to give you all the information about the claimants and what they're going through. That isn't going to work as such, but there's no way on earth you can expect the claimants to give you information about what the middle users need. And trying to balance those two needs together and get these complex, effectively, use cases to coalesce, I can imagine it would be a Herculean feat. Unless that responsibility for building the relationships and between the middle users and the end customers and users and getting people like yourself as close as possible to those users with a very tightly constrained, prob- at least initially, problem to explore. If that's the role of a product owner to build the teams between the those users and the teams and also build a relationship as a product owner between them as well. But so when in your situation, the product owners that you had, what... Oh, you, oh, oh, we do little bunny ears here. What product were they owning? At the time, the way the whole platform was, was set up were lots of components. And some of the different vendors, for example, Accenture, they already owned a lot of the backend systems that supported the overall platform. So any change was then owned by them to those platforms. Me as an IBMer, we owned the rules engine and that was our predominant sort of technology that we were responsible for. And so product owners were very much aligned to the technology. So there wasn't, I would say, another sort of big pitfall was the fact that there was no real end-to-end thinking to say, well, as a product owner, it's, it should be more about the outcome that I'm supporting or that, that overall end product or service Uh, as opposed to just being aligned to a component, which was very much how it was at the time. Because the teams were set up as component teams. You know, we we didn't work with the front-end guys in our team, but in a real sort of truly agile group of people, we have that cross-functional team. We would have had a mixture of people. But the fact we were very much siloed in terms of our uh, companies that we were working for was the way that the teams had been structured. So a classic example in there of uh, component teams versus sort of those feature teams really hindered agility. And that's how the product owners were also uh, sort of assigned 
Did I understand correctly you saying that they were in the component silos you were in because of the companies that were involved in the work rather than saying, well, let's let's organize for efficiency or specialism. It was a case of, well, we've hired that company to do that thing and that company to do that thing and that company to do this thing. So obviously yeah. that company's company should just work on those things that we brought them in to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just saying, in terms of the, the bidding process, it really stemmed from there. So each company were putting in for lots. So which lot were you going to bid for? And every company predominantly bid for the lots that impacted their technology that they were already running. So it really stemmed from there. And that whole procurement process then drove the way the teams would be set up. And I just don't think anyone was either not, they weren't brave enough or, you know, probably not influential enough to be able to change that structure. Because if you imagine that's the way these guys are being paid, that's the way the whole sort of business model has been created for each of these consultancies, it, it would have been really challenging to set them up any differently. But even, even feeding new consultants into the process, as you can imagine, as more work is coming, we were bidding for future lots. And often, as you know, consultancies without bad mouthing consultancies, they make money from people. So the more people you have on the ground, the more profitable you're going to be. So people were were looking to win more work. And the recruitment process as well to hire those people has to start from the moment that you're fairly confident you're going to win that business. So there's a pipeline of talent that needs to be recruited for and there was just too much at stake, I think, for those big senior bosses uh, to just sit back and say, actually, guys, why don't we do this the right way? Why don't we actually structure in the right way and think about outcomes here rather than just the way things have always been? Mm. Guy, if it's a proper complex soup of stuff going on, it's giving me a bit of a headache, a light, a light headache. Because... One, the one thing that Les is, I think, brilliant at... Dum-dum-dum. Oh, what a cliffhanger. I hate to do it to you, but I love a bit of suspense, and we are leaving it there. When we pick up the conversation in the next episode, we will go much deeper on this agile catastrophe that Paddy has been telling us about, as well as some ideas about what, perhaps, could have helped it. As always, don't forget to shout about the podcast on social media, and until next time, I'm Ben Maynard. <laughs>